The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. So welcome, Caitlin. Very, very thankful that you have joined the podcast. I know that you are somebody that has said that you think this is a a powerful vehicle to get the stories out there, to lift up the voices of people on the front lines, and you are certainly somebody on the front lines. Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about the the kind of healthcare work you do, and then what was going on, you know, when the pandemic hit? So I've been an ER nurse for the past 10 years, five of which were spent as a traveling ER nurse. So I've worked all across the country in about 11 or 12 different facilities. I had just settled here in Oregon in January, just prior to the pandemic hitting. So I moved out here on my own, started a new job in January, mm-hmm. and being in the Pacific Northwest, it kind of hit here first. It's funny, I, as I, we were just chatting, and I, I said that I stole the term that I got when I chatted with you, which was this concept of pre-TSD, not PTSD, mm-hmm. but pre dash TSD. What did you mean by that? So obviously, you know, everybody was watching the news and seeing the pandemic spreading and, you know, we're a global society. So we knew it was coming to us and everyone was just kind of waiting to see when it was going to hit. And we had the first cases out here and I guess it started in Washington. We started seeing things. My first exposure was March 19th. And as we started seeing patients trickle in with this, we're realizing we still don't have policies set up to protect us. We don't have the right equipment to protect us. And there was that increasing, just exponentially increasing anxiety of when is the shoe going to drop? And it was just this all consuming, you're at work and you're scared about it. Is this patient with a cough? Is this COVID? We didn't know what it looked like. We didn't know the transmission yet. We didn't know how to treat it. 
we didn't have any testing for it. So just the overwhelming sense of anxiety and, and you just couldn't pinpoint it. You couldn't understand why you were feeling this way because it wasn't that bad yet. You know, you were seeing the patients, but it wasn't what you were seeing on the news of what was happening in Italy where people are dying, you're running out of vents. So right. we just couldn't pinpoint that overwhelming anxiety that we were feeling. Somebody mm -hmm. pointed out pre-traumatic stress disorder. You know that the trauma is coming. You just mm -hmm. don't know when. That's such a powerful term because it really captures, you know, in my experience with people, you know, we're talking about. And also it's really interesting as we talk with people from all over the country in different areas when the pandemic hit, because I was in Connecticut and from Connecticut, Washington seems really far away. You know, I remember that uh, it was in the United States, but it was far away. But you were right next door. So you both experienced the same sense of not being prepared, but you were like right there. What was your experience of when you actually started to see the, the virus? It was still just a lot of the anxiety of not being prepared for it. Like I said, my first exposure was March 19th. We didn't have enough policies in place to be able to separate potential COVID patients from non-COVID patients. We didn't have testing at that point. For the entire state of Oregon, if I remember correctly, we had 40 tests per day for the entire state. For the entire and, state. Yeah. And everybody had to send their tests over to Salem. And there was one testing center and they ran the sickest first. So we were seeing people that we weren't able to test and were wondering where they're going to fit into, are these the sickest first? And we had a couple of cases, you know, young people, 29-year-old, otherwise healthy person, a 30-something-year-old that had flu-like symptoms for 48 hours and then came in coding. And you're sitting there wondering, I've now been exposed to this person. Are they even going to be tested? And kind of as crude as it is, does being dead make you more or less sick? Is that higher priority or lower priority on, on being tested? For the testing, interesting. Right. And you know, you know, we've been exposed to the aerosolization of intubating a person and doing chest compressions and it's just that constant worry of, have I been exposed? Or when you know a patient came back positive, now I know I've been exposed. Am I going to get sick? Are my friends going to get sick? Am I going to pass this along to somebody else? Even if you had a COVID positive patient, we didn't have enough staff to say, well, this is your only patient for the day. You still have to go see other patients. And it was a huge fear of ours that knowing we were being underprotected, are we putting other people at risk? Other people meaning... Other patients. Mm -hmm. So a lot of unknowns in the beginning. And sometimes if you weren't able to test, it seemed like something different was coming in, some different kind of virus. Absolutely. Absolutely. The way you described it, it sounded like it could be pretty sudden. That's what we were seeing at first. We were definitely seeing people with not very long with symptoms. You know, they'd have flu-like symptoms for 24 hours, 48 hours, and then all of a sudden their oxygen saturations were just plummeting or they would have this hacking cough that they couldn't catch their breath. We were just seeing strange things like strange presentations that we couldn't pinpoint. So of course, you know, we would all worry that that was COVID. We still didn't understand the extent to which the symptoms would present. So how did you and your colleagues approach it? I mean, how did you come together to figure out what to do? So even before it hit us, knowing that it was inevitably coming to us, we tried to fight for a plan. We tried to figure out a way to separate COVID from non-COVID patients. 
in an effort to efficiently treat these patients while keeping ourselves and everyone else safe. But it felt like everything that we came up with was met with just pushback from management. And early on, we didn't have any PPE. They're just nationwide. There wasn't PPE to be had. So we knew we weren't adequately protected. We were using single-use PPE, having to wipe down gowns with bleach wipes and then pulling them over our heads so that we could reuse it again. And even to the point where we were, you know, having to use hand sanitizer on gloves to try to reuse gloves. And in many situations, we were just trying to find whatever we could on our own. I had family and friends just sending used N95 masks or respirator masks for, you know, home projects, things that they had had lying around the house or in their garage somewhere, like sending them cross country to me just because that was more reliable protection than what the hospital was providing. And we just had to rely a lot on community and each other because our leadership at many levels was failing us. We knew we were being gaslighted. We kept being told that we were safe from people that refused to even come into the unit. People that were working from home now were telling us how safe we were. And, you know, we're educated professionals. We know that we're not being protected. And we're realizing that these regulations weren't there to keep us safe. They were there based on keeping us working. So, so it felt like you were way out into, I was going to say enemy territory, but like across the line, like you're over in the field of battle, yeah. but the support didn't feel like they were there. Or when you say gaslighting, this idea of like, you know, it's already confusing enough, but it's hard to know what to believe even from leadership. Right. We already didn't feel safe and we were begging for policies that made us feel safer. We were begging for better protection and 10 months into this, we, we still don't have it. But in those early days, I think the anxiety just took over and mm -hmm. there were starting to be discussions as far as who should be the ones to take care of these patients. What was that like? I think there was a divide of people that had families maybe, or, right. you know, and those that didn't like, what was that like? I think it was, you know, fear-based and it's understandable. Like I said, we didn't understand the transmission. We didn't understand how contagious this was. You're seeing pictures of healthcare workers in Italy and China and all across the world that are in full hazmat. And we had a mask and a rinky-dink gown. And we know that we're nowhere near as protected as these other countries. You know, obviously, you don't want to get sick. You don't want your loved ones getting sick. So it's understandable that you're having these fear-based reactions but some people were starting to say, well, I have small kids at home. I shouldn't be part of the COVID unit or mm -hmm. I shouldn't have to deal with respiratory patients. And then it started becoming a push of, well, you're single. You don't have kids. You should go in. And then it's like, all right, well, I'm single and I don't have kids, but I still think my life is valuable. <laughs> like, I don't mm -hmm. want to get sick. And there was kind of that discrepancy of being exposed to a disproportionate amount because it was, well, you've already been exposed, so you might as well keep taking them. Or you don't have a family at home, so it's not like you're going to transmit this to anyone. Wow. What was that yeah. like? So you could hear that as like people in a crisis trying to figure out some kind of ethics about 
how to send people to the front lines, but it depends on what side of the divide you're on. And it sounds like <laughs> you were on the side of the single and no kids side. What was that like for you? Uh, it was isolating. It, it kind of made you feel like mm-hmm. this is the view that my life is less valuable because mm-hmm. I don't have a family at home, you know, but then there's that fear of the higher the viral load, the more you're exposed, the higher the potential that you could actually contract it. So yeah, it was, it was just more stressful and it kind of made you feel more alone and more isolated because that whole aspect of going home to no family, my entire support system is across the country. I moved out here for this job and I didn't have somebody to come home to that was a support system. I couldn't go out and do any other kind of activities that would relieve the stress, you know, go out hiking, go out shopping, go out anything. It was very isolating. So I think that's one of the things that it's important that you're giving voice to. I think people don't walk around necessarily knowing what their frontline healthcare workers are carrying, you know, into the field of battle, so to speak. I mean, obviously you're in this work because you love it and because you're good at it and because you want to help people and you're passionate. And when you signed up for the job, you knew what the stresses would be. And you're in the emergency room. I'm sure you've seen a lot of suffering and death and things that people don't normally see in their lives, right? In their day-to-day work lives. But what you're speaking to in and above that, when you were or still are out there saving lives, taking care of people that come in because they're sick. There's an extra layer of stuff. You know, even just this last thing you said about feeling like, I don't want to use the word expendable, but you know, necessarily, but, but that's not usually a feeling people expect to have in a normal course of work, maybe in an actual war battle, they, they might, but you were just saying also something about, in normal times, you would be able to deal with your stress. You have ways of dealing with your stress, but those weren't available to you. Right. That term expendable has been used a lot along with disposable or sacrificial. I've heard these terms echoed by so many people that I've worked with or spoken to all across the country just to explain how we're feeling. Even the term healthcare heroes that people were using a lot, it feels tainted. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I have so much immense respect and appreciation for everyone that's going through what we're going through and and works under these conditions and still continues to show up. As much as I've never been more scared or stressed to go to work, I've also never been more proud to be part of such an amazing group of people. But I feel like there's another side to it. Like calling us heroes is almost an excuse or a way to justify how many of us are going to get sick or die. Like our death toll is some kind of noble wartime sacrifice instead of something that should be avoidable if we're given the appropriate resources and protection to do our job. And then when we shine light on these conditions, we're told that we signed up for this. And, you know, we just, we want to take care of our patients we didn't sign up to be underprotected. Proper protection is drilled into you from day one. And the first step of all emergency training is to ensure the scene is safe. And we know we're not safe, but we're still being expected to perform our job with what's becoming more and more sick patients and 
fewer resources and now fewer staff. Really interesting what you said about hero, because, you know, I can imagine lots of people wanting to use that word with the best of intentions. And even back in normal times, I'm sure you didn't do this work to be called a hero. You know, you don't do it for that. You do it because you love the work. But now it's even more kind of, uh, it doesn't fit with your experience. And it, right. it sounded like you're saying, you know, it's not just words that you use, but when you're talking with your colleagues locally and across the country, there are new words that have come into the lexicon of frontline healthcare workers, you know, the expendable, sacrificial, like almost if, if we did a word cloud for all the frontline workers, you think we would actually see there's people using those words? Oh, absolutely. At this point, especially, we're so exhausted. This has been every day for us. And we're still not, like I said, sure, some places have it different. I know in my personal experience, we are still fighting every day. I have been fighting every single day for the past three weeks with the committee, trying to get us the proper policies, procedures, and PPE for this coming surge. We're already seeing the numbers rising again, and we still don't have what we need. And this is now December 1st. We've been doing this too long. We haven't had a break. We haven't had a chance to come up for air and people are over it. So that support is gone now, that community support where people wanted to honk their horns and and wait outside the ER and clap for us at seven o'clock. That was very much appreciated. That show of support was so appreciated However, all we're asking is just stay home, wear your mask, wash your hands, and people are over it. So Why do you they, think that is? You know, because people read the paper and they, they see that the numbers are, in some cases, just as high or higher. Why do you think people are done with it? I think everybody just wants to return to their normal lives. And I don't think anybody can relate to that more than those of us that have been dealing with it day in and day out. You know, we deal with it in our work lives. We deal with it in our personal lives. We understand we want this to be over also. We want to be done with this. We're so exhausted. And I think people just figure, okay, well, you know, it it was fine to quarantine. You know, everybody took their little mask selfies and we quarantined at home and we made it into this fun thing. It's not fun anymore. Mm -hmm. We want to go back out. We want to see our friends. We want to see our family. We miss that sense of normalcy. And I think people just think, well, now I'm willing to take extra chances and extra risks just to have some sense of normalcy instead of actually trying to get rid of this thing. And you don't have the luxury of being done with it in your work. Exactly. Because for those of us that are not on the front lines and it's not right in front of you, it's different. And a number of people talk about the frustration or sometimes they use the word anger about the difference between what you see with your eyes, you know, on the front lines and then people's behavior, like you're kind of talking about. Have you, both people you know, people you don't know, family, friends, what has your experience been in that regard? I've definitely seen it both ways. I've had people that are incredibly supportive my poor parents that have had to listen to all my stories, they have been quarantining since March. Mm -hmm. But I also have family and friends that have listened to what my coworkers and I have been going through. And, you know, obviously some people want to say this is hyped up by the media and don't believe the news. But if this is coming from somebody that you know, and I'm telling you everything that we're seeing and how in the entire careers of everybody that I've worked with, this is unprecedented we don't scare easy in the ER. 
we see crazy things all day, every day, and we thrive on it. But this is something that has scared everyone that I've worked with. And to hear that in mass, to have people still not take it seriously, I don't know what else we can do to get through to people. And it's extremely frustrating. You know, I have family that's still, the way that I phrased it was, they're not letting the fact that people are dying interfere with their parties. Mm -hmm. And I actually have people, and I know this is the case for a lot of my friends across the country, we'll have people come into the ER and yell at us for our policies because this is ridiculous that you're making me wear a mask. This whole thing is a hoax. Really? Is that in the blue? They're not sick. They just walk by an emergency room. Oh, no, no, no. They'll, They'll be patients, but they'll be in for something else. And we make all of our patients wear a mask. And we have, you know, different visitor policies now. So they'll get upset that they can't have their family members back or multiple family members back. And they'll get upset that we're making people wear a mask and they'll yell at us. Like we get verbally abused on a daily basis by people that don't like the COVID policies at the hospital. And they yell at us saying that this is a hoax and that we're blowing this out of proportion. And meanwhile, we could have somebody intubated two doors down. They have no idea what we see. They have no idea what we've been through. And, and it's at this point, it's a conscious choice not to see it. Part of the uh, absurdity or perversity of that, as I listen to you, Caitlin, is um, people clearly have convictions, very strong convictions, and feel as though they're speaking from a position of authority in a way, you know, and passion. And your authority on the topic comes from you've earned it, right? I mean, you've earned it, <laughs> it literally in the trenches for months. It's hard to beat that kind of authority. It's hard to argue with that. And yet there seems to be a missing piece that uh, somehow there's a disconnect with, I, I don't know if you experienced that. I mean, it, have you been able to turn somebody around on this to change their mind that, that was coming at you uh, speaking with passion on the other side, not taking it seriously, and you were able to kind of turn them around? To a certain extent, I'm not going to say it's 100% effective, but I had people that are not in the medical field, you know, family, friends, acquaintances that reached out to let me know the truth about COVID. That, you know, from the comfort of their quarantine on their couch, they're going to tell me the truth about COVID and what it's really about, the conspiracies behind it, how it's not real, how what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing isn't happening. And most people I'd say were somewhat receptive to, look, it's still, especially early on, we don't know what's happening. But what I can tell you is we're seeing symptoms we've never seen before. We're seeing these unprecedented presentations. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how to treat it, but this is what we're seeing. It's consistent with what they were seeing around the world. Some people you're able to turn around. Some people are just they hunker down harder into their convictions that this is a hoax. How do you deal with that? Are you, are you able to laugh, at least laugh at it a little bit? Are you and your colleagues or? I'd say the inappropriate humor and the just having to laugh at this is our only saving grace. I don't know what, what the word is. Is it brave enough or willing to be really for the team, you know, to do that for the team? especially back in that first surge, you know, what kept you going? Like, how did you get through it? I think a lot of it was just having each other, our team. Cause as I've mentioned, I, 
I was out here by myself. I did not handle it well at first. The amount of stress, I felt like I was either at work dealing with it or I was at home just trying to consume as much as I could about it. I was watching the news. I was looking up articles. I was trying to find everything that I could find so that I'd be prepared for the next time I was at work. And then there was almost this anxiety if I had a couple of days off, well, what's changing? What am I going to walk back into at work? And, you know, things were changing day to day, sometimes shift to shift as far as policies, procedures, and the census of patients, how acute the patients were. So it was kind of a strange mix of you want to not be at work because it's so draining and it's so exhausting. But the longer that you're not at work, you're wondering, well, what's going on there? What am I going to be walking back into? It was almost easier to keep picking up extra shifts just so that you're aware of what's going on, just so that you're staying informed. And it was overwhelming to just have it constantly. You're either worrying about it at home and just trying to take in all this information or you're, you're dealing with it and it's physically and mentally exhausting. When you were just describing that, I was almost getting this visual of like a, a part of your brain that a lot of healthcare workers have, which is, which makes you really good at what you do. You know, you're scientifically minded and curious and you want to solve problems. If you see a problem that nobody's solving, you want to solve it. In your life, you've been able to take amazing care of people by using that part of your brain, right? By learning things that aren't easy to learn and then applying them in the world. And so this new thing comes along that there's no roadmap for, there's no game plan. And so you, that part of your brain just starts going, you know, and it's trying to figure this thing out. Like you, you're saying almost too, too much, like, you yes. know, to yeah. sort of detriment. Another thing that it does when you have that kind of a way of thinking is it, it makes you vulnerable to having something like this be traumatic. Do you know what I mean? Like some people might not care, but to be a healthcare worker, you're used to solving problems. And all of a sudden, not only are you dealing with all the stuff you've talked about, you know, the, the exposure and all that you're seeing, but you can't figure it out. And I think there's also an important part of what we go through as compartmentalization, mm. at least for me personally and other people that I've talked to in this, in the emergency room, you see trauma all the time. You know that you're walking into that. You know that anything could happen at any point. We see things on a daily basis that if somebody saw one, one event, they would potentially be traumatized for life. And this is our job. You know, we're exposed to this all the time, but we need to compartmentalize and have some sort of balance, some sort of release. And we weren't getting that. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a chance to, okay, this is what we're dealing with at work. Now I'm going to go home and I'm going to relax. I'm going to process this and move on. There wasn't a chance to compartmentalize because you're at work and you're dealing with it. Now you're at home and you're researching it. You're thinking about it. You're wondering what's happening at work. You're wondering how bad it's going to be tomorrow. And there was no chance to come down from it. There was no chance to process it. And it was just getting exponentially more and more overwhelming because you didn't have that chance to just release and just relax. This has only been part one of our conversation with Caitlin, so please be sure to tune in to next week's episode to catch the rest of her experience with being on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic.
lift the mask, voices of heroes in a silent pandemic. With Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 Eight three.